Hi, everybody, and welcome to WGN-TV Political Report. I'm Paul Lisnick. The state of Illinois is entering its fourth week under the governor's stay-at-home order. The number of confirmed COVID-19 cases continues to climb across our state, but health officials say the growth rate is slowing, meaning Illinois is likely nearing the peak of the pandemic here. Still, officials say there won't be a quick return to normal once the curve begins to flatten. The state continues to struggle to meet its testing goals and the race for protective gear for essential workers remains competitive. Congressman Adam Kinzinger is a Republican representing Illinois 16th District, covering Rockford to Ottawa all the way to Watsika, joining us today by Skype. Uh, Congressman, happy Easter to you. Happy and, Easter, thanks. And thank you. And let me start by saying, look, it's no surprise to anybody that Governor Pritzker and President Trump butt heads over how this uh, pandemic is being handled. You said both have made mistakes. Let's take a positive spin. What's going right right now? I think a couple things are going right. First off, the American people's reaction. You know, one of the concerns when you looked at some of the early projections of how many would die or be infected was that only like 50% of Americans would follow through. And it's somewhere in like the 90-95 range. That's huge. That actually shortens the amount of time we're going to have to be in this situation. Uh, I think there have been some good responses from the federal government in terms of trying to get as much PPE done as we could and rolling out testing as quickly as we could. The state government as well from a communication perspective, which is really important. Uh, and, and I think what else has been pretty incredible is what the private sector has done. I mean, six months ago, we never knew what coronavirus or COVID-19 even was. And now you have, for instance, Abbott Labs that is now basically saving the testing thing by being able to get results quickly and, and get that done. So I think there's a lot, right? There's some things wrong, but I think a lot of that is, you know, who who in the world expected something like this besides in theory? And uh, now we're better prepared if something happens again. You guys barely passed the third stimulus package and already there's discussion of the fourth. Some people saying we really ought to wait and see how the third one does before we take on a fourth. What's your feeling about that? And if there is a fourth, in your view, who should it help? Businesses, individuals, what should happen? I think we need to be cautious on kind of jumping to a fourth. What we don't want to do is just take an emergency and react and panic. I mean, the, the debt that we're driving up, it's necessary at this point, but it's also really intense. It's a lot of debt. There's going to be a lot we're going to have to pay off someday. So I think the uh, payroll protection program, for instance, putting more funds into that is important. Seeing where that settles out. And then without trying to get either the right or the left's political agenda done, it's taking a look at where the shortfalls all are, whether it's rural health, whether it's community health centers, and fixing it that way. I also think that longer term, whether this is in the fourth or later, we really need an uh, infrastructure package in this country. Gas prices are low, so we can talk about how to pay for it that way. Uh, but also infrastructure is deteriorated, and it's a great opportunity to get people back to work quickly, but do it the right way. So it looks like the money printers are going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At some point, do we hit a standard where we've, we're spending so much money, and I understand the importance of spending it, but the hole's so deep we can't get out of it? Yeah, and, and we're close, and that's where, here's the point. We've got to have grown-up discussions in our country and in our state. In the state, we know that the pension system is unsustainable. In our country, we know that the entitlement system is unsustainable. Everybody has different views of how to fix that. Some want to tax more, some want to cut. There is a way to make it sustainable when 70% of federal expenditures are things that in Congress we don't even control, we don't appropriate. That's where it's going to take hard decisions. And, and really the test of leadership 
is going to come when this economy recovers. Do we take this debt seriously or do we keep uh, just printing money? Because while it may not be today, very soon we're going to see massive inflation if this in this country if we're not careful and we just print money and we don't deal with the underlying cause of problem. Look, our viewers are watching this right now and many live in your district and they're going, you know what, that's all fine and good but I don't have my $1,200 check yet and I've lost my job and I'm not paying my rent and maybe you're trying to help me there, but that's gonna come home to roost one day. What do you say to people who are essentially losing everything right now and they still don't have a check? No, I'm as frustrated as, as they are. Uh, you know, when you all of a sudden have to send a check to millions and millions of Americans that the IRS wasn't expecting, it does take some time. We expect that very shortly, we don't have an exact date, but, but in the near future, uh, people with direct deposit information with the IRS will get that check, and then the checks will be mailed out after that. It's always a good reason, I guess, to have direct deposit with the IRS. And then in terms of some of the kinks in the small business loans, again, you're rolling out a gigantic program in like two weeks where usually it takes the federal government a year. So we're going to continue to do our best to try to fix that problem, but I understand the frustrations for sure. How important to you is having independent watchdogs watch over the doling out of money, the half of half of uh, a billion that you know Mnuchin is looking over? The president's been removing some of those watchdogs, putting his own people in. You concerned or are you cool with it? No, I, I certainly think we need watchdogs, and uh, not necessarily the president's people, but not people necessarily against him. We just need folks that are going to look at it and say, is the money being spent where it was supposed to be spent? What are the states doing with it? You know, we talk about this boost to unemployment. I've already heard from a lot of folks that are concerned that they're trying to ask people to come back to work. And folks are like, well, I make more on unemployment with this boost. And at that point, you don't blame somebody for not coming back to work, but they should. So how are we going to have oversight that the money is spent directly? We need solid oversight. And the problem is when you have to spend quickly in an emergency situation like this, really times of the essence. Yeah, I think I said half a billion. I should have said half a trillion. That's what that is. Look, um, 17 million people almost at this point, 10% of the workforce basically out of work. What are you hearing from constituents, from businesses in your community? The president says, hey, we're going to like flip a light switch and get it all moving real quick. What do you think? Well, I, I hope so. I think, you know, when I've seen uh, economic analysis, they say, you know, if this thing ends in the next month or month and a half, or at least we start to reopen, they expect that third and fourth quarter rebound is going to be significant. It will not get to where we were right before the pandemic in that short of amount of time, but we'll do some rebounding. So, you know, the, the economy was strong when we went in. So the fundamentals are there. The question is, the longer this stays closed, you have things like underlying housing market decay, which, as we know, in 2008 was a massive problem uh, with the uh, financial crisis. So as long as we can turn this around quickly, soon, uh, I think long term we'll look back and we'll have recovered well. But the longer this goes, the worse it is. And, and on, uh, it, people are miserable right now and they're and they're scared. Hey, finally, let me tap into your world of expertise. You serve in the Air National Guard. Some guard has been called up working McCormick Place and whatever. Should should we be using National Guard more? Have you are you receiving any orders to do something? I, I haven't been called yet. Uh, there's actually a pretty decent chance we may be in the next week or two. Uh, I think the guard, you know, needs to do more. And it's not, you know, patrolling streets uh, in this case. People are not out rioting. They're not breaking into stores uh, and police can continue to maintain order. But it's backing up uh, areas where they need help, for instance, moving medical supplies, which is what we would probably do in my aircraft if we got called up. Uh, it's augmenting, you know, where folks have COVID and maybe they're a prison guard and they can't guard the prison. You can send the guard in to help that way. And I do believe they should be more federalized 
because that actually helps uh, with the cost. The federal government will carry 75% of the cost if they come under what's called federal Title 32 or federalized state mm -hmm. duty. All right, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thank you for your service, sir. Have a good Easter. Appreciate you joining me. You bet. Take care. All right. Still to come this morning on WGN TV Political Report, the state of the race for president with the Democratic field down to its presumptive nominee. How will the candidates handle campaigning in the age of COVID-19? And later. That's a product of generations of systemic disinvestment. Mayor Lori Lightfoot calls it a public health red alarm. What the city is doing about the racial disparity in coronavirus deaths. That's up next. Welcome back to WGN-TV Political Report. As the COVID-19 death toll continues to climb, data shows a sobering racial disparity in Chicago. African-Americans making up 70% of the people who lost their lives last week. Mayor Lightfoot calls it a public health red alarm. Those numbers take your breath away. They really do. This is a call to action moment for all of us. When we talk about equity and inclusion, they're not just nice notions. They are an imperative that we must embrace as a city. The city is now forming a rapid response team that will be part of the COVID-19 response team already in place to address many of these inequity issues. Alderman Roderick Sawyer represents the sixth ward in the city. He also serves as the chairman of the city council health and human services committee. He's joining us on this Easter Sunday via FaceTime. Hey, Alderman, good to see you again. So Thank you for having me, Paul. one of the things we know is this virus does not discriminate on race, on location. It crosses all borders. So how can we explain the fact that the impact on the African-American community is just completely disproportionate uh, to other groups? Well, Paul, we really shouldn't be that surprised about that. The problem that we have is that blacks have been at the top of any negative category as it relates to health outcomes over generations now whether it be diabetes, whether it be high blood pressure, uh, you name it, we've been at the top of it. And the, the uh, epigenetics of it all uh, seems to point out that the stress relators that we have as African-Americans contribute to a lot of this. So it's not surprising, it's just disturbing that we have to go through this at this point in time. I have another thought about this, um, which is the jobs that many American, uh, that African-Americans serve in, which are really critical to our economy, be it delivery person, be it nurse, uh, you, you know, truck driver, just all of these things are so critical, which puts them in contact with more and more people. So is this one of those where, you know, you're at the front lines and therefore you're more susceptible? I believe that is a contributing factor. But Paul, I think the underlying fact is that that we have to really get to drive to the bottom of this. Why do blacks suffer disproportionately for every major health outcome that we've seen in the city for decades and for generations? Excuse me. Uh, but I, I think that what we need to do is do a national study. And I, I know it may sound redundant, but when I talk about reparations, we talk about this very outcome uh, that, that we see with African-Americans as it relates to health outcomes. And this is something that's just adding icing onto the cake. We have to find a better way to deal with how black people are dealing with health outcomes, and they have to be better. We need to focus on it. We need to contrib contribute several capital dollars toward it. 
and come to a, a, a real outcome. I appreciate what the mayor and Dr. Awadi has done with their poverty uh, seminars that they've been having over the last couple of months before the outbreak uh, got to this level, but we have to do more. And let me follow up on that because, look, you're right. we got the rapid response team. We're going to get research. There needs to be more research. But even if I grant you all of that, it almost seems, Rod, that's about some future pandemic, God forbid, but that's some about future event. What needs to happen now for the African-American community to, to get the word out and to get some assistance now? The same effort that was put into the stimulus dollars that we put trillions of dollars into uh, the nation's hands, the same thing should happen for African-Americans uh, a, a study, a real study with black doctors and black epigenologists to figure out why we suffer disproportionately and try to come up with real outcomes, real solutions, so that we won't be at the bottom or the top of whatever list you uh, prefer uh, of any negative health outcome. We can survive this and we can thrive. I was talking about this with your colleague, Alderman Scott Waggispack, and one of the things he said, he said the city really needs to tackle this big time, and he talked about a PSA campaign, that there needs to be uh, billboards, that there needs to be signs on buses, and really getting the word out. What's your thought about that suggestion? I, I think that's a part of a, a great solution. I don't think that's the end-all, be-all of it, but uh, we need all of these uh, ideas to come to fruition. We need PSAs. We need studies. We need uh, doctors uh, examining us and finding out why we're succumbing to these illnesses at an alarming rate and do more all across the board, all over the nation. Um, there are other complications facing the community, lost jobs, uh, you know, people still waiting for those checks to come in from the government. Um, is, the, is the loss of job situation affecting the African-American community just as serious? Again, because it seems that so many are in critical positions where maybe they're not um, getting laid off as much as others. My daughter is in the hospitality industry, so she has not been working for several weeks now. Uh, it hits African-Americans, again, the hardest. Uh, I, I think that we need to look at that. As you stated earlier, uh, we have jobs, we call, and I don't like using the term that much, but we have terms like essential workers and non-essential workers. Every job is essential because they're feeding families, they're taking care of themselves and others with their employment. And when we cut their employment, we eliminate their ability to take care of their families. We need to do better nationwide in crises like these and, and, and make sure that we can step up and take care of the least of these, the those that aren't able to do it on their own, especially during the times where they're not working. Uh, we need to do better all across the board. All right, Alderman Roderick Sawyer of the 6th Ward. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. You enjoy your holiday. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take another break. And after this... Good conscience. Continue to mount a campaign that cannot win. With Bernie Sanders stepping out, what's ahead in the race for president under the new political normal? Stick with us. While this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not. Today, I congratulate Joe Biden, a very decent man, who I will work with to move our progressive ideas forward. 
Once viewed as a dominant frontrunner, Senator Bernie Sanders officially out of the Democratic race for president. Sanders' exit now clearing the way for former Vice President Joe Biden to take his shot at taking back the Oval Office for Democrats. The race for president coming to a near halt last month as the new coronavirus continued to spread. Candidates trading and shaking hands and holding rallies for virtual town halls and social media messages. Some major questions remain on how the race between Biden and President Trump will proceed. We've been through hell before. We had an election in the middle of the Civil War. We had an election in the middle of pandemic flu back in the turn of the century. We've had an election at every major crisis. We can take care of our health and our democracy. The idea of postponing an election is not possible. It should not happen. The democracy has to continue to function. We have to lead. Clarence Page is a Pulitzer Prize winning and longtime columnist at the Chicago Tribune. He's joining us now from Washington to discuss the future of the race. Happy holiday to you, Clarence. Appreciate your joining me. Thank you, Paul. Let me start. Did the pandemic push Bernie Sanders out of the race? And what I mean by that is if we still had rallies to go to and that kind of thing, would he have hung on to his agenda a little bit more and taken this race longer as he did in 2016 with Hillary Clinton? I certainly get the feeling that he uh, would have, but uh, at the same time, he was getting pressure from the, especially the, the, the uh, Joe Biden folks and uh, the uh, party regulars in general uh, to uh, step aside so that uh, could uh, clear the field for Biden. Uh, you, you remember that uh, uh, um, uh, Bernie stayed in uh, almost to the very to the convention uh, last time around uh, against Hillary Clinton. And uh, a lot of folks said that that hurt her ability to really get her campaign started. So uh, Joe Biden won't have that impediment. So Bernie's out, but at the same time, he didn't give a full-throated endorsement to Joe Biden. I'm staying on the ballot. I'm going to continue to gain delegates. All I can figure out is he wants to have a very long discussion about the party platform. Do you agree or is there something else going on? Well, you know as well as anybody, Paul, as soon as you say you're not running, people start losing interest in you. <laughs> the one thing he's got right now uh, for leverage is those delegates. And uh, he wants to remind people that he's got a whole bunch of folks on that convention floor. Uh, if we have a convention floor, <laughs> we're talking symbolically right now. Uh, but he wants to remind people that there are a lot of, of, of uh, voters out there who do like him and his platform and his approach. And uh, so he wants to keep uh, his cloud as long as he can. Bernie talks about the importance of Biden having to reach new voters. He's probably right about that. But specifically, Sanders would be referring to um, uh, labor workers and young people. Well, labor workers kind of get behind Joe Biden anyway. Young people don't vote. So already you see some shifts in Biden on his policies on student loans and Medicare eligibility. How much pressure is there on Biden to shift towards Sanders to reach voters that young people, for example, who don't even go to the polls? In numbers yeah, that that, uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, Biden's not getting as much uh, pressure from young people as I had expected or as Bernie had expected. Uh, I thought the uh, that was one of the big surprises to me of, of the primaries that uh, we didn't see a more uh, full-throated uh, uh, support uh, and participation by the younger voters like we saw uh, really boost Bernie last time around. Uh, at, at the same time, we got a, a situation now in which uh, uh, they're uh, facing that decision of whether to support Biden uh, or just to sit it out. I think this time, uh, judging by the way uh, we saw that uh, youth support sort of peter out during the primary, uh, that there's not that much pressure uh, from 
uh, that uh, side, what uh, not from the younger voters. At the same time, there are a lot of older voters, labor voters, uh, uh, blue-collar voters, swing voters, uh, who made a difference for Trump in the upper Midwest last time around. Uh, uh, they do have a liking for Biden that is considerably stronger mm. if he can just hang on to it. So back in 2016, Bernie supporters, fervent in their support when he was losing, basically said they'll vote for Trump before they'd vote for Clinton, which may say more about their feelings towards Hillary than it did about Trump. This time around, do you expect Bernie supporters to do the same thing, or are they more likely to say, we'll give a shot at Joe Biden? Well, I think last time Bernie supporters, uh, Bernie, well, those who swung all the way, made something of a measurable difference in Michigan, uh, which was a very close vote. And you also had Jill Stein on the ballot there as a third-party spoiler. Uh, that uh, really made a, uh, a situation in which um, uh, you saw visibly that uh, there was a lot of um, opposition to Hillary Clinton out there that we're, uh, we're not seeing this time. And I, I suspect we're going to have uh, uh, the question is how many will, vote, will cross over and vote for Trump this time around. Uh, Trump's certainly been working hard at pulling them over. Uh, but uh, I think that the, uh, it, it may be a bit uh, over uh, uh, emphasized at this point that you've got a lot of uh, disgruntled young uh, uh, Bernie supporters who will go over and support Trump. I'm, I'm being very guarded with my words here, Paul, because <laughs> uh, those uh, uh, swing voters can be very unpredictable. Uh, they fooled me last time around. I wasn't expecting as big of a support for Trump as Trump got. Wow. Uh, and uh, but this time I'm also seeing a lot of folks who uh, like Biden's approach. But all of that happened before the uh, coronavirus came along. Yep. So, uh, so clear. Claire, just a few seconds left. I just want to ask you, moving into the election cycle, we have a new normal. Um, does it favor the president or a challenger in this situation where we may not have rallies, we may not have the kind of things that Trump likes to do, but at the same time, we watch him every day as he handles this virus problem? Yeah, I've advised everybody to uh, don't worry about bringing back the old normal because it's not coming back. <laughs> the new normal will be something like what we've not experienced before. Uh, there is certainly, uh, um, well, what's interesting about Trump is uh, I find it kind of annoying that he comes out every yeah. day with press briefings. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of voters out there appreciate the fact that he's involved. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or not, he really offers much constructive to the conversation. All right. Something we'll pick up on again in the future. Enjoy your day, sir. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll take one more break and we're coming right back.